Hello and welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast, everyone. Uh, Rob Fay from Oregon and Mr. Roman Sivkin is in New York City. And we have our producer, sound engineer, Heston Hoffman across the Willamette River in Portland. So we, we continue with our quarantine summer and uh, uh, a pretty crazy week. I think um, we're all thinking about books, but I think we're also thinking about, uh, at the time of our recording here last night was was uh, a Saturday night with, I guess uh, you can say civil unrest throughout the United States. And, and so it's on my mind, Roman. I, I know we usually don't try to dive down too much into to politics, um, although this I think transcends politics and is just part of the, you know, the fabric of our life here. And, and as people who are readers and thinkers, um, it's impossible I think to just pretend that you know uh, none of this is happening. And um, I always try to think of these things in terms of um, the history of the United States, because often they're they're cyclical. And so, um, you know, last night there was massive civil unrest throughout the country in major cities related to the, you know, the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police. Um, and it's just hard not to, um, you know, think deeply about that and to be affected. And I, I was mentioning before the show that, um, it reminds me of, of what I've read uh, about this country in 1968 when, um, you know, you had the same racial dynamic, sadly, um, that we see now where you have people, um, African-Americans in cities who feel oppressed by the police. And they've been trying via other means, peaceful means, to sort of get recognition of that. Um, but they they don't seem to get any any relief for this. And then you also, you don't have a pandemic in 68, but you have the Vietnam War uh, really, really going bad. You know, um, in, in, you had the Tet Offensive early in 68, where it became clear that the US government had been lying to the United States, lying to the people, the war had not been going well. And the, um, the, the Viet Cong uh, staged a massive uh, offensive to demonstrate that to the world. And, you know, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Roman, but I, I was just, um, there's this famous clip, uh, you could find it on YouTube, of, of Robert Kennedy. He was running for president in 1968, and he was scheduled to speak uh, in Indianapolis to an African-American crowd at like an airport or something, an airfield. And 20 minutes before he got there, Martin Luther King was killed. And so many black leaders said, don't speak, you know, it, there could be a riot. And he said, I'll speak, you know, and so he... Um, he announced to the crowd, he said, you know, I have sad news. Martin Luther King was just killed. And you hear this audible gasp, you know, in, in a world without social media, they had no way of knowing until they were told um, by by someone like that. And, and Kennedy went on to speak from his heart. He quoted Aeschylus, a uh, Greek poet. Um, and he 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 did what leaders are supposed to do. And, and um, you know, I'm not suggesting that. Uh, you know, um, we need some kind of great white hope to fall from the sky to make this right. Um, but Robert Kennedy was a leader at the time, and he spoke from his heart. And, and one of the fascinating things is that on that night when Martin Luther King was killed, there was rioting in, in many of the same cities and many of the same neighborhoods that rioted last night. But in Indianapolis, Indiana, there were no riots. And so it, it does show you that if we 
again, I, I don't mean to suggest that some leader from the sky can make it all right. But if there is this communication between people that's heartfelt and real, you know, this, this can, this, this can have an effect. Um, but yeah, I, I you know, I, I, there's no, there's, no unifi- I, there's no unifying voice right now. There's nobody, the, nobody's unifying the country. People are dividing the country. The cops are bad. The people are bad. This is bad. The, the president's bad. You know, the president's good. It's just this divisions, these divisions that are exploited by the politicians and, and in a large part, you know, created by them as well um, for for power and, and glory and whatnot. Um, and, but but it's, it just seems to be a, a, a reawakened nightmare. It's, it's a, it's a yeah. the nightmare is always under the surface, uh, but now it's, it's again, burst right through the surface and it's just... It's just everywhere, and uh, I, I'm just—I don't know—I don't know exactly how to react. I'm disappointed with this country yet again. Um, I, I just—I'm a naturalized citizen, and I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed of being a citizen of this country because it's just fucking up right and left. Um, I think I'm partially responsible for that, perhaps uh, in some some form. I, I'd like to think not, but probably because I am, you know, Caucasian. Dude who uh, who's very politically not involved um, on purpose. Um, so perhaps it is partially, to some extent, my fault. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what to. I don't know what to tell you guys. I'm just. I'm just. Yeah, and 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 I think you know. Again, we're not pretending to be, um, you know, great experts on on you know the the cultural issues of the day. But but as 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 thinking people, as people who come together and think and read, um, we, you know, I, I'll make the assumption that the people who listen to this podcast also are grappling and thinking about these issues. Um, and, and again, as people who are involved in, um, uh, influencing the culture. And I think, um, that includes people who have podcasts, people who write book reviews, people who write essays, people who are, um, you know, active directing conversations on Twitter, you know, there is some, this is our culture. And I think you were, you were talking Roman, you know, this is our society. And I think the part that's so infuriating is, is, uh, the, the police force, you know, acts in such a way that they don't seem to be invested or to have any kind of identification of the humanity of the people yeah. they're Like policing. they're not part of the society. They're certainly yeah. like they're sort of arm of of right, the powers that be, and not the whole country. And know? and and one of the things that was was so interesting because I I get emotionally involved in this as as everyone does, but I also try to keep a historical as well as a global perspective. And one of the things that really caught my attention last night was um, various U.S. governors and mayors were almost universally. It's almost as if they had talking points, which is quite possible. Mm-hmm. There is a mayors' association. They were essentially saying that, you know. Um, the, um, it was, it was mostly outsiders that, that were causing trouble in my city or my state. And, and so there's a couple of ways to think about that. Number one, this is precisely what the Chinese government is saying about the protesters in Hong Kong, right? That it's, that it's foreigners that, that are causing problems. Mm -hmm. The people of Hong Kong have no, no problem with Chinese oversight. You know, and we know, again, this is a propaganda Technique. I and, just heard, and, uh, by the way, Rob, that the mayor of Minneapolis came out just recently and said, "Actually, I'm sorry, that's not true. That everybody's outsiders. Yeah. I was just told that by the chief of police." 
So yeah. there's some major lying going on. Exactly. Because because to be frank, to protect their own ass. You know, there there are only so many Antifa members in the United States. It's not possible that all of them were at you know 19 cities last night. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So I think we so so the higher level thing is. Okay, so maybe they were not from Minneapolis. Maybe they were from the suburbs of Minneapolis. Maybe they were from Michigan. But the point is they're Americans, right? And this gets back to the point that, you know, th these are not um, Soviet commandos or Russian commandos invading the city. These are Americans who are... So the Russians voice. apparently are, are obviously um, doing the yes. online, um, you know, <laughs> rabble-rousing. Absolutely. To destabilize um, the country further. Totally. Yeah. But, you know, so I j just making that observation. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to get on a soapbox. I don't pretend to know. I'm, I'm sure that uh, the people who listen to the podcast have a range of political opinions. And, and I think um, there are respectable point of views on both sides. But I think the idea that we can continue to deal with racism as, as something that happened long ago or something that that is just um, the problem of white nationalists or something like that is, is just ridiculous. And I think the, the idea that this is a conflict between, say, white nationalists or bad cops and, and the black population is, is ridiculous. I, I think white Wrong people, narrative. Yeah. yeah, white people, including me, we need to look inside our own consciousness and our own hearts and and to to recognize that we've been raised in the culture that is that has kind of contaminated us to a certain uh, respect and and mm -hmm. even even with our best good intentions to to see the humanity of black people we have to recognize we've been tainted a bit and that we have to fight through that and kind of own that and it I, I at one point I I think it was James Baldwin who who really said that um, you know. Don't, dear white people, don't look to us black people to tell you what needs to, to be done. Racism is your problem. Mm. You invented it and you perpetuate it. And he said, you need to figure out why you needed to make us uh, the boogeyman. That's on you. And, and it, it's still, I think, really relevant advice. What, what, what is in the, the American mentality that needs to somehow have an other that we fear, that we dehumanize, and that we sort of um, keep on the margins. What What is it about our psychology and our culture that needs that, that continues to perpetuate that? So I don't have any answers. Again, um, you know. Uh, it, That's it, a good observation. I, li I like that, Rob. I like that because it really – it. It, it makes for reflection. You really have to reflect that it's not out there that's happening. It's happening inside our heads. Totally. Uh, this, this division, this this conflict. Uh, and it's, again, it's not, I really don't think it's any kind of a partisan issue. Um, it's 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 more like, you know, we live in this society and how the heck do we live, live in this society in a better way? Yeah. Know? Yeah. So... So I, I know it's I know it's on people's minds, certainly in our minds. So um, I throw that out there, um, and and I I can't help thinking about inequality because I, I I think I mentioned to you guys you know lately I've been reading this uh, massive uh, book about economics called Capital in the Twenty First Century, and it's by this French economist named Thomas Piketty, and um, he wrote it 
several years ago, and I'm sort of late. It was a big seller. It was a yeah, a big splash. Now I I haven't read the book. I've read some articles about it, Rob. But is because I I I I my impression of of Piketty and and his approach is that he's he's almost like an anarchist. Is that uh, not in the not in the kind of a nineteenth century Russian sense? Um, um no, I I'm not? I'm not I'm not getting that. Uh, just I don't know a lot about his um, let's say you know personal point of view or his background. I I'm just judging based on the text. He is. Um, very sympathetic towards, you know, a progressive point of view, but he is, you know, he's very clear that, um, you know, the Marxist analysis, Marx in particular, uh, was based on um, not a lot of data, uh, a lot of anecdotal um, thoughts that he had based on observation. And so the, the, the interesting thing about his book is he's, he's investigating inequality, right? This is his purpose. You know, we, we know that inequality exists within the Western industrialized countries, as well as in a place like Japan. Um, so he wants to understand, you know, is it a historically, uh, is it an anomaly or, or is it, or is there some historical parallel? So what he did, which, which seems kind of obvious to me, but is not apparently, um, all that common in the discipline of economics is he he went through um, all of the uh, income tax records from the Western countries, principally the U.S., Britain, and France, um, and those date back to the early 20th century. And then what he also did, going back to the 1700s, is he looked at um, um, estate taxes, right? So essentially the taxes that were levied against agricultural land, right, which was one of the major forms of wealth. Um, prior to the Industrial Revolution. And so he's looking at the historical accumulation of wealth and the disparity of wealth. And he, I'm in the middle of it, so it's it's difficult to, to summarize the book. But what he's essentially getting at is that um, he makes a distinction between um, the, 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 the wealth that's earned from capital versus the wealth that's earned from labor. And, and what he's showing is that um, the growth that comes from capital earnings um, historically has always outpaced the growth of the economy, the growth that one can get from from um, labor, right, labor income. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to see um, in the 21st century a repeat of where things were just prior to World War One, right? You and I had an episode on um, Habsburg Vienna. And so the wealth that was accumulated in Vienna in places like this, we're starting to see similar concentration of wealth in in the um, you know the wealthiest ten percent, and and what he's showing is um, although there's great inequality in in incomes, they're not as great as the um, uh, the disparity in capital, and he means capital as um, you know bonds stocks, dividends from stocks, mm. real estate, business properties. And so the inequality that he sees in the 21st century and that he predicts will continue is going to be perpetuated because people are um, the, you know, the top 10% are going to continue to see rapid growth on their capital. And then we're also going to see they're going to be inheriting their the next generation. So there's going to be a perpetuation of this this you know caste 
Um, and he doesn't see without, you know, aggressive intervention um, in terms of progressive taxation and this kind of thing, a real change. So it's a warning sign. So but isn't there isn't there historically, Rob, uh, and I, I, I'm not you know, huge on this knowledge wise, but isn't historically whenever capital has been concentrated uh, in one particular segment of society, there's always, I mean, seems to be to me, always been some sort of conflict that that ease that little bit at least until well, the well, next accumulation and so you're, on you're you're absolutely right um but one of the things that could ease this which he hints at is you know when the disparities become too much is is you could have a when revolution. right when right and you and so in the past i mean it's already happened <laughs> right right and and so right the french revolution he he um we actually have a lot of financial records um, from the old French regime and then the post, um, post-revolutionary post France. But he, he points out that um, right now we're back to the point that um, Europe was in 1910, where you had this concentration of wealth. And it wasn't so much that the, 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 um, the top 10% were just wealthy, as, as you see in America today, but simply that they, they were so wealthy that they didn't actually have incomes. They just had um, uh, money flow from from capital and real estate. So they didn't work, right? So if you read the novels of Jane Austen, or 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 even the novels of Henry James, right? There are all these rich people who who don't have jobs, right? They they simply are living off the growth of their capital, mm. right? And and so he he says today it's a little bit different, where the the uh, top 10%, many of them do have to work, but their salaries are so exponential. And he calls it this sort of um, this um, kind of super manager class, which is particularly you know, evident in the United States, where you're, you, know, you have the, the top level executives at you know, tech companies and airlines right. and finance firms. So, so they are not living like some aristocrat um, in 19th century England, they do have a job and they have to go to the office every day, but their salaries are so exorbitantly above, you know, the workers. But um, I'll, I'll say one final thing and then I'll, I'll get off the subject. But to your point, Roman, um, it was World War One, the Depression, and then World War Two that that shook uh, the wealthy class of Europe and uh, took away quite a bit of their wealth. And so post-World War II, the, the top 10% had much diminished capital, right? And so, so things get to a certain point in, in outside forces, whether it's you know, uh, a, a political revolution or a war or a depression or a pandemic. You know, it's hard not to mm. think about the shocks to the U.S. economy, or all three uh, at the same time. Yeah, Jeez. right. So it so it can get you. It it can. It's an interesting book to read right now. As you point out, it came out I think in 2014, and um, I think among um, uh, you know Obama supporting types, uh, yeah, neoliberals. It was a very popular book and right. of great interest, etc. Does so, he talk about, I'm assuming he talks about uh, UBI, universal basic income, which is one of the solutions, I think. Um, you know, he, um, Maybe later the, on. The, the end of the book, right, are his solutions. So it's, it's yeah. a very 
methodical. Um, you know, he is a social scientist, right, an economist. So there is this, um, you know, I'm going to walk you through the history, I'm going to walk you through the data, and then I'm going to, uh, you know, make, make recommendations. Um, but, you know, to tie that back into what's happening in American cities, it's simply the fact that I think even for those of us who feel comfortable or feel privileged or feel fortunate, who, who wants to live in a society where, you know, across the road, we know that there are, you know, there are people who are feeling desperate or, or feeling left out or feeling marginalized. I mean, that, that isn't a good way to enjoy the good life, you know, no, and, and no, you, when you I can't have, a, you can't have a good life, which in my book is what Socrates, uh, you know, that's kind of his dictum, sort of the, the examined life. If you have to, you have to have an examined life to have it uh, to be a, a really good life. And you can't have an examined life if you don't look around you and see what's happening and actually examine yeah. it. And it's, boy, I mean, it's right in our face right now, isn't it, Rob? It's just I, right in our face. We yep. cannot ignore it. We cannot. We cannot. And that's why, I mean, the, the default emotion nowadays is outrage, which is horrible because when you normalize outrage, um, I think you internalize a lot of a lot of it psychologically, and so then you have a damaged population. I mean, I think we have a damaged population right now. I mean, I mm. I, I feel damaged, um, right. you know, internally somehow, and in, in this uh, there's a disconnect between me and my society. I just don't seem to be able to fit into this into this scheme of things, you know. And and but don't you also you feel the temptation, and and, and this can you know connected to our our feeling bookish universe is. You can always retreat into into literature. You can always retreat um, into you know the great the great works of the past. You can. I, I've been. Um, I think I mentioned last podcast. I was re- reading about the U.S. Civil War, which in some ways is not actually a retreat no, <laughs> from the current situation, no. but 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 is also. I mean, you know, yeah. you can you can get lost in the romance of you know General Grant on a horse in a in a pastoral America. With um, you know, uh, you know, great armies facing one another, um, but but I, I I'm struggling with that. Um, you know, there's a part of me that 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 yeah wants to uh, you know just read all the books of Thomas Mann and and forget about uh, 2020 right. America and and wait this one out. You know, mm. um, but 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 maybe the point is. That even if you read Thomas Mann, it it the great books are about grievances, loves, passions, um, and outrage, you know, politics, well. outrage. That's, so, that's why I love William Gaddis, for instance. William Gaddis, for me, uh, is an American writer who was so outraged by his own society that he masterfully put it into his art. To such a in such a way that it's not a polemic, you know. He wasn't beating you over the head with like this is wrong, this is morally wrong. American society sucks. No, he put it into the context of his art and uh, works like J.R., uh, which are hilariously funny, but also expose so many of these um, 
these uh, frayed aspects of our society, you know, and uh, of, the, of the way we organize ourselves uh, economically and, and culturally. And so this outrage, this moral outrage, and by moral outrage, again, I don't mean any kind of like, you know, since I don't like it, I don't want you to do it. Not that kind of moralizing, but a, a right. true ethical sort of stance towards what's happening in, around you. Uh, that's what I really appreciate about writers, uh, such as Gaddis, for instance, you know? Um, and so so for me, a retreat is, it's not really a retreat, it's some sort of a, a getting some sort of sucker, some sort of um, confirmation that I'm not, I'm not uh, some, some weird, you know, lily white liberal uh, with his precious little uh, set of uh, opinions about how the world should be, no harm to anybody, everybody's happy, blah blah. blah. No, <laughs> no. I mean, it's a it's it's a complex world. I I totally recognize that. Um, but I want I want literature to give me that that sense of like outrage that's been verbalized in such a way that it becomes art. So that it's not. Uh, not a fist punch in your, in your face. It's more like a slap, so that you're like, oh, oh, th so that's what's happening. You know, you're not yeah. seeing stars. You don't, you don't, you don't sort of pass out and and spend your time in some sort of fantasy world. But you're 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 awakened by the art. You're awakened by it into some sort of a, a realization that what's happening in your world right now, outside of art, is just shit, and you can't take it anymore. And you just you you're just not going to stand for it anymore. You know. Uh, I think that's the power of of good literature for me. At the same time, you know, I'm getting ready to read. Uh, getting back to more books, I guess. Uh, I, I I made a slight, perhaps tactical error, in that I decided to do uh, very difficult reading projects for the summer. <laughs> I uh, with Greg Gerke's um, encouragement and others, I decided to read uh, William Gass's The Tunnel, which. Is a very difficult work. Uh, deals with uh, with uh, some very heavy themes that are very relevant today. Um, um, and then I also signed up to do uh, what's billed as. It's so funny. I got this email from the organizer saying, "Yeah, we've added you to the list." And there's a description of of what they're going to do or we're going to do. And it's it builds itself as at the top of the email says, "The world's most difficult book club." <laughs> so. I like Basically, that. We're going to be reading uh, big parts, big chunks of Finnegan's Wake, uh, things like Shem de Penman, which is a wonderful section of the Wake that deals with, uh, you know, what is it, what is, what is it like to be an artist, or what is it like to be creative, uh, what is it like to be a writer, uh, specifically Shem de Penman. You know, he's the writer of the twins. There's two twins in the book. Uh, so anyway, so we're going to read large sections of Finnegan's Wake in about a month, and then in. Uh, around July, August, we're going to read all of Bottom's Dream. That's Arno Schmidt, the German writer, um, and it's considered, you know, the sort of the German Finnegan's Wake. This book, um, it's not his best book, I would say. It's it's the one he completed last, I believe. Um, but it's just huge. It's like something like, I don't know, 40 pounds. It's oversized book. Uh, it's got three columns of text on each page. Um, but in preparation for that, you know, what you know what we're doing, Rob, is actually I've been doing something very enjoyable because um, uh, Schmidt, um, there's a lot of references to uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, he adored his works, Schmidt, mm. and um, also uh, Fenimore Cooper. Uh, so I've been I've been going back and reading some of these uh, sort of early American writers, um, yeah. 
I'm in the middle of Edgar Allan Poe right now, uh, the narrative of A. Gordon Pym. And I tell you, Rob, I, after reading Musil and, and just having this you know, kind of uh, metal European kind of like, you know, mentality in my, in my head for a while from reading, uh, to get this uh, 19th century uh, Edgar Allan Poe uh, narrative, that's really, it's, it's, it's not a novella. I believe it's a novel. It's pretty long. Uh, but I'm just gripped by it. I'm just really into it because it's an adventure. It's a you know this is a, this thing's happening on every page. This just like wow, what's going to happen next? You know, and I'm just really, really enjoying that. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think since we start talking about you know the unrest, the civil unrest, and what's happening in a society. I'm trying to think of how. How to connect Poe to that? How how does Poe fit into this picture? And I'm not quite I'm not quite yeah. sure if I can't connect them, but uh, I'm just wondering. I'm wondering. Yeah. If that's a- well, you know, I, I I don't know if I can specifically connect them, but I but I can I, I can add my passion to particularly with Poe and Hawthorne that I I I return to them once in a while as well, and I'm always amazed at the 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 quality the the mm. the 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 artistry of those, those two writers. And part of the challenge is I was introduced to them in a, in a, you know, a junior high setting, particularly in, in, in Massachusetts where, you know, Hawthorne, right. With, with the house of the seven gables and you and I live in close proximity to Salem, Massachusetts. There, there was a lot of, you know, you have to read Hawthorne. Um, right, and, right. and, you know, Poe was a part the of the local that. author. The lo- yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and so I encountered them as a juvenile, but uh, my goodness, those two writers are still uh, first class. Well, you know, Rob, I, I'm, using, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm reading uh, when I'm at work. I have it on my little phone, you know, from the Gutenberg, the God bless them, people. Um, I read it on my phone, uh, you know, the, the, the Poe book. But when I'm at home, I read it. Uh, uh, I have a physical copy of a book that I got, again, back going back to that that wonderful book haul I had from that um, person who died and who left this huge library and I was given the chance to sort of take what I wanted from from his library uh, and I got this uh, collection of Edgar Allan Poe includes a bunch of poetry um, some essays and, and and some fic and some prose and I remember using this book to read the Raven and 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 other oh. poems to my kids when they were little oh nice uh, so now I'm picking it up again I'm like wow you know this this whole thinking that I was going to get rid of all my books is just, I, I don't think I can do that. I think I'm going to, yeah. to keep a bunch of them, uh, even if I ever do get to my, be. My uh, loss. <laughs> yeah, you'll get, you'll get plenty. There's plenty to, okay. to be had. But uh, I, you know, some of these books, you realize that they're, they're part of your life. You know, my, my, my son certainly remembers this, this particular uh, this, uh, book. Um, so it's really, really cool to just pick it up after, what, 20 years and just read something else uh, in the same book and have mm. the same cover and something very comforting and, and a sense of continuation that you're, you're continuing to talk to this author or he talks to you or she talks to you. You know, it's just this kind of conversation that like, oh, I put it down about 20 years ago and here I am picking it up again, you know, yeah. and there's a sort of a continuity and- Going and, on, and I, and I think um, we talked last week about. I think you and I both feel some consternation that we don't read enough contemporary books, and um, I, I know it's easy to dismiss contemporary novels um, because many of them, as 
contemporary novels have been in every age. You know, most of them are 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 mediocre. Mm. Um, there are great books being written, but it's it's as you get older, you you realize that your time that you have revisiting Edgar Allan Poe or revisiting Faulkner or or reading, um, finally getting and in, in spending time with um, the poetry of Emily Dickinson that 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 time is, is less and less, right? When you're 25, you think, well, you know, I'll, I'll always, I'll have plenty of time to sit down with Emily Dickinson and really <laughs> work through her poems. But you realize when you're, you know, older, let's say, that um, there really is less and less time for that sort of thing. So um, it doesn't surprise me, yeah, that you... You just have to follow, follow, follow your nose, and if your nose yeah. leads somewhere, you just have to go there. If you refuse to follow your intuition, I think that's when you start running into <clears throat> difficulties reading or difficulties with that. Yeah, because you can't, you can't program your reading. I mean, you can, but it's <laughs> it's very ineffectual. I think it's not it's not gonna have the same. You know me, Rob. I've always followed my nose. I I, I rarely uh, do programmatic reading. Uh, but for instance, uh, reading Poe right now, it is programmatic because I'm anticipating, uh, you know, finding a bunch of reference in in Arno Schmidt. But it's also a different kind of reading, right? I'm really enjoying just the, the pure joy of reading a, an adventure story from the 19th century by a master mm -hmm. like Poe. But I'm also reading with this 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 delicious anticipation of like, what? I wonder what Schmidt's going to use. I wonder if he's going to, you know, because it's, it's a different kind of reading. I'm not just yeah. reading it for pleasure. I'm reading it in this weird anticipatory pleasure of finding the references in a different work from this book that I'm reading. <laughs> it's really well, cool. Really, well, I really it, like it. It, it. It's almost as if you're designing your own curriculum, right? You're giving mm -hmm. yourself your own course. Like, yeah. like, um, as if you were at, you know, Hampshire College or one of those um, yeah. 60s And unfortunately, I'll, I'll still miss a lot of references because I, I, I don't have a lot of background in like you know, Fenimore Cooper, for instance. Mm. Uh, I never read things. Uh, I never, because I, I, I don't think I was here uh, in the country <laughs> for that. Well, maybe I you, was. I don't you, know. you never read, uh, don't, don't you remember we had uh, Mrs. Congdon and she used to yes. teach uh, Natty Bumpo. And, I don't uh, remember James Fenimore, Fenimore Cooper. She yeah, loved Natty Bumpo. Yeah, I remember was, Mrs. Congdon, man. That's weird that you just mentioned her name and I like immediately pictured her. <laughs> yes. Um, and and if people don't know Natty Bumpo, he was a um, uh, a kind of Western pioneer hero type uh, in a series of novels by James Fenimore Cooper. And and I think he, he banged them out back in the day as, you know, he was just trying to make a buck. Um, but, uh, I haven't read them since I was in high school, but you know, they, they're kind of a minor work in the, in the American canon, I guess you'd say. And, and, uh, I was just reading something, Rob, I don't know if you saw this, uh, it was online somewhere. Um, and I, I can't come up exactly with a name, but somebody, I don't think it was Schmidt, but it might've been Schmidt, but I don't think so. Somebody said that, um, some author, some famous author said that they were, that they much preferred Fenimore Cooper to Shakespeare. In fact, they, they placed them a above Shakespeare. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, um, there is there is a really um, you may like this because I know you've you you recently were on a Melville kick. There is a classic book of literary criticism by D.H. Lawrence. Have you ever come across this? He he um, he traveled to the U.S. in I'm going to say in the probably around the time of World War One, 
And he traveled to the Southwest and he yeah, was really, Santa Fe, right? New Mexico. yeah, he was yeah. really impressed and blah, blah, blah. But he did a study of American literature. And I think there's a, there's an essay on Melville, which is supposed to be um, quite I've good. heard of that essay. I never did. Yeah. There's a definite so, a Melville connection because it's a sea story, uh, the the Gordon Pym narrative. It's 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 takes place on the sea. And I actually felt a lot of sort of um, sympathetic waves, shall we put it that way, with yeah. uh, Melville's fish story, you know? Yeah. Uh, it almost seems like I'm reading Melville in a strange way because, again, it's 19th century. It's American. Yes. Um, not the same, but there's got a little bit of that, that sort of parallel to it, you know? Um, and, and this, um, the Lawrence book, which I think is titled something like studies in American literature, it, it has the writers you would think he would cover Hawthorne, Melville, um, uh, Walt Whitman, but there, to my surprise, when I picked it up a year and a half ago or something, there was a chapter dedicated James Fenimore Cooper. So it does tell you that his reputation was such that, um, you know, he was included in that, that kind of company. My, my guess is, um, probably not someone that that's, that's read too much these days, but, but, uh, no, but, there but you, you know go. what James Fenimore Cooper, I, I have a whole, uh, sort of, well, he, he give me, let me give you the background for this. Uh, you know, my, 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 uh, the person that I, sort of considered it was one of my sort of intellectual uh, heroes, uh, mm. Raymond Smullyan, the person that yep. I, I actually became friends with eventually. Um, he's uh, died a few years ago uh, in his late 90s, 90, I think he was 96. Um, but you know, I would visit him in his little, little house uh, in upstate New York. And of course, just thousands of books, Rob, thousands of books everywhere. This house just filled with books and pianos, you know, because he's a pianist. Um, but uh, and talking and just looking at his bookshelves, uh, he introduced me to a whole array of 19th century American writers that are now not being read at all. Um Oh. Uh, completely out of fashion, like essayists, uh, like uh, Mabby, I think I forget his first name, Mabby, uh, John Burroughs. Um, uh, the, by the way, the John Burroughs, uh, his journals are just just awesome, just pure awesomeness. I, I have this old volume. Uh, it's called The Heart of Burroughs' Journals, and mm. they're just just precious. Every every page is just awesome. Observations about America, about society, about literature. Um, and essays like Mabi, like or maybe I think it's pronounced it's M A B I E, um, kind of proto Emersonian type of uh, Thoreau type of uh, transcendentalist New England transcendentalism type of work, but also has its own character. Um, and so there's this whole array of because you know he's uh, Raymond Smullyan, you know, was in his 90s when I met him, so. He, he was born what in the 1919 or something like that. So, so talking to this person who who came of age intellectually in the 30s, and so he imbibed all of these things that people don't read now, um, and just to see this a whole aspect of of our culture which gets passed over because it's not. Yes. I don't know exactly why it's not fashionable, but you go back to it and you see that it's very not relevant, but it's, 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 it's still literature. It's still art. Yeah. It's still people's deep thoughts and reflections and, and, and from our country, from our very country that, that really it's part of our history. 
And, you know? and so I, I can think of that in terms of, I mean, let's imagine, um, which may be happening as we speak, that um, the literature of the beats um, falls out and it is no longer uh, carried through. Well, by to the a large academy. extent, it already has been. I, I would think so. And, yeah. and so, but, but think of what, and let's say that you could make the argument that there isn't a whole lot of literary value, but, but as you're suggesting, the, the cultural context and the, and the insights that you would get about you know, post-war America from mm -hmm. 1945 to 1970, say, would be would be lessened without those books. Absolutely, familiarity. Absolutely. I think the value is not in the books; it's in it, it's in the interaction between you and the books. And so, you can have a whole library of, let's say, 19th century American American writers who are not, you know, particularly read today, and they could just sit there and collect dust, or uh, you can sort of poke at it and see if it arouses your interests. And then you start poking them a little bit more because, you know, these these were people who had some deep thoughts and interesting thoughts and wrote beautifully uh, and uh, lived in our country That's um, hasn't really changed that much in 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and, you know, I, you know, we were talking about the the unrest that's going on last night in America. and And I always start poking around in my bookshelves because I – I get exhausted by the people trying to understand history as it's happening. I mean, it, it, it's good. We have journalists who are trying to help us. There's analysis. I mean, I'm all over the New York Times trying to understand what's happening. But sometimes, it, yeah, it really helps to poke around. And I was looking at a book on my bookshelf, and I was flipping through it, and it was about the the uh, the debates between uh, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln about you know slavery. Um, before Lincoln became president. And there was a reference to Douglas being uh, a devotee of uh, Andrew Jackson, um, old Hickory, who was um, a Trump type figure. And, you know, he was a, 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 a and there was a, a description of him as a, as a nationalist and a rabble rouser who was always looking for a fight. And I thought, you know, there's Trump. And, and I, Apparently, I think Trump has a, a portrait of Andrew Jackson, like in the Oval Office. He moved it because, you know, not, not that Trump <laughs> knows anything about history, but someone probably told him. Right. You know, he's a he's a fighter. Oh, yeah. Um, so so again, you, even the anomalies brought on by by President Trump um, aren't really that new, you know. So th no. these these things are cyclical exactly. because, you know, humanity that I think technology continues to um, to change and progress. And it, that does go in, a, in a, a straight line, so to speak, because we, we build upon engineering knowledge. But humanity, every time a child is born, you know, you're kind of back to step one, in, mm. in a sense. It's a whole new moral universe. Um, and, you know, the, I, I, I don't want to be pessimistic, but, you know, just as trauma can can really continue through a family from generation to generation. I think, the, you know, cultural, oh, yeah. cultural traumas just continue to, um, yeah. And I think it, know, add, it, it, with each iteration of this trauma as it, as it bubbles to the surface, it seems to get worse. Um, yeah. and, uh, the, going back to the Piketty book, the inequality that's growing is uh, obviously, obviously one of the major uh, factors here. I mean, right? I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any question about that. Yep. And so it's like a boil just kind of on your skin, just just popped open and this whole 
mess coming out of it, and then it's just disgusting, and it's horrible. And um, but I don't and, know what to do about it. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and I I don't think you and I need to know, and I'm not sure anyone knows right now. Um, and, and and clearly nobody has known for for decades and hundreds of years. I I don't know, but I I do wonder. And I'm just thinking aloud here as as the U.S. becomes a country that perhaps is, you know, more and more unequal, that that may even have governments in the future that are quasi authoritarian or or um, um, authoritarian uh, in name. Um, you never know um, whether our society um, has more instances of of political rebellion um, or if or if pandemics become more common I, I I think back to some of the literature that came from countries where there were authoritarian governments where there were um, very very difficult um, social situations and I, I I'm rambling here but what I'm getting at is um, you know great art and great books will continue to to tumble out. I mean, you think of the Russians, dude, in the 19th century. Yeah. Um, they, they they wrote those books uh, under um, an increasing czarist dictatorship. And, um, you know, we, we, we read uh, Demons on this podcast. If, if folks are interested, you can go back and find Dostoevsky's uh, Demons. And, um, you know, the, the unrest uh, in, in Russian society depicted in those books among uh -huh. the young. Looks I mean, familiar, was, doesn't it? Yeah, incredible. <laughs> yet, yet that's the piece that when I, my point, I guess, is when I start to feel discouraged about the, you know, political, governmental, social structure going forward is that, um, that art and artists invariably um, cannot be stamped out. They cannot be crushed, and 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 you can, we can go from culture to culture, time to time, and we can find instances of, um, you know, great writers and great artists arising from, you know, poverty, inequality, oppression. I mean, even you could make the case the great um, African American writers in our own country, James Baldwin. I mean, how do you, how do you become James Baldwin, considering the obstacles, and the hatred directed at you? How do you become the person? who goes to Oxford and has a debate in front of the students of Oxford, one of the great universities of the world, and you debate William F. Buckley Jr., mm. uh, a white man with, 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 with resources, great education, yes. and a great privilege. <laughs> yes. how, how, do you, how do you get to that spot where you, you can handle that moment and you can out-debate a person with all the privileges and education well, of William F. Buckley? When, when, yeah. That's that's the weapon that we have. That's the um, weapon that we have, Rob. And you know, you mentioned the Soviet writers and writing under oppressive conditions. Um, uh, one of the books that sort of made a an impact on me early on in college, uh, and I'm sure I mentioned it here, is is uh, a book by a philosopher called uh, God and Plastic Surgery. Uh, by Jeremy Barris, B-A-R-R-I-S. Yeah. talking about that. Yeah, yeah, it's a lovely book. It's really, it's a strange book that uh, is something about like equal parts uh, Gertrude Stein and Wittgenstein. You know, it's just, it's, it's fun to read. It's mystifying, but at the same time, it's uh, illuminating. Uh, but anyway, so the, 
one of the points he makes in the book is that when when society is hunky dory, when things are kind of going all right, uh, you know, a lot of people have access to success, and you know, the the general wealth is kind of equally spread, or at least you know, relatively equally. And then art is kind of a it's kind of a, a a beautiful thing you can hang on the Christmas tree. It's it's a decoration. Um, <laughs> You know, it's something to, to enjoy uh, while sitting by the pool um, or, or maybe visiting the museum on the weekend uh, while you're, t- you know, maybe on vacation or something like that. Um, yeah. But in oppressive times when – and oppressive times don't have to exactly mean, you know, Soviet-style oppression where, you know, you have to right. stand in line to get bread and the right. censorship. Oppression can be uh, subtle like in this country. Um, it's sort of covered up under the carpet, so to speak. Um, but still, it's very oppressive in, in, in certain ways. It, that's that's when art becomes extraordinarily important. It's not an, anymore a decoration. It's not something easy that a lot of people can sort of partake in. It's it's something that that becomes very very useful because you're you're so desperate for something that's uh, that sort of transcends your current situation, that you reach out and you grab this thing and it becomes a life, almost a life, and sometimes literally a life and death situation where yeah. you hang on to art uh, as as something that will see you through this, these dark times. And I think yes. I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly, increasingly viewing uh, my reading that way, that it's... Uh, even though it's aesthetic and it's, it seems seemingly frivolous. I mean, what am I doing reading Edgar Allan Poe, a sea story, you know, uh, some adventure on the sea? Um, it seems to have no relevance, no no sort of power to ground me in today's crazy world. Uh, but yet it does. Yet it does because yeah. I this continuity is an American. Here's an American telling me a story from, you know, 100 years ago Um and here I am now. It's just again. I, I don't like direct parallels. I don't. I think those are wrong to draw direct parallels. You know. Well, this book is about fascism, and therefore it's relevant for today. Well, not really. You know. Yes. It's it's how you read it. It's how you react to it. It's how you then, uh, after you take your eyes away off the page and you look at the world. How has that changed? How has that look changed now? How you see the world that's different now because you've been you've been sort of ra- wrestling with this art. Um, that's it, man. That's, that's the, that's what we all chase, man. We've talked about it before. Yeah. I think we need to, need to double down on our commitment to uh, serious art. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it, that's the thing that's going to get at least me, uh, through this. I don't know if I'll actually get through this intact because I think we're all losing some of our humanity as we speak. Um, and you know, yeah. And, and I mean, I, I, I'm always on the lookout for, you know, we, we called it, um, I wrote an essay at one point, uh, called the everything novel, right? The novel that, that, that speaks to, on multiple levels about multiple aspects of, of, of what's happening at the moment. And, you know, maybe that, maybe that comes in five years, maybe that comes in seven years and, and maybe it comes tomorrow. Um, because it's not like what's happening now just suddenly fell from the sky. It's it's all it's all been percolating in the culture for years. And, you know, probably that everything novel, that everything American novel is it's probably going to be written by a woman. It's probably going to be written by a woman who's probably from an immigrant family um, whose parents were from, you know, who knows, Honduras mm. or Pakistan or whatever. But, yeah, I, I help, you know, I, I guess I, I do look to novelists help us 
And I don't mean help us in terms of like, yeah, simplistic moral teachings, but just as you said, when that book is on your lap and you, you, you put it down for a second and you look around and the world, the world is different. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so you get those from, from the books, the, these great books that have come down to us that have been uh, curated uh, and, and put aside because of their, their value to us. But there is also nothing like getting uh, a book of the moment brand new that really speaks to to what's happening now um so i don't know um if 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 you've discovered that uh people who listen to our podcast tell us on twitter we, yeah, we want to know what that book is um so yeah well rob it's it's a crazy world and i yep. i uh one <laughs> I, I i was such a big george carlin fan that um that I, uh, my kids have caught the disease for me and have been listening to Carlin a lot. Um, and so uh, now I'm in permanent marker, had a little thingy in our wall, a quote from George Carlin, which I think is relevant now, even though I remember he's a comedian. So this is from a comedian. And here's the quote. You can't fight City Hall, but you can goddamn sure blow it up. And... That's and that's kind of my last word for today. No, it's not inciting anything. It's a quote from a comedian, uh, NYPD. If you're listening, fuck you. But yes, that's just a quote from a comedian. Yeah, I'm 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 angry. I'm really angry, man. I'm angry at yeah. the police. I'm angry at our politicians. And again, I I hate the fact that the, my default emotion nowadays is outrage. Uh, yeah. I think uh, all of us, all of us, right, people who listen to this podcast probably can sympathize. Uh, yeah. No, and I think we have to we have to just acknowledge that too, because part yeah, of it also really is just is just saying like, because you know I think both you and I I think you more than me you you try to keep an almost Taoist, uh, so old world yeah, Asian uh, <laughs> distance from from uh, <laughs> from politics, um, but it's tough. It's tough yeah. right now. It's tough because, again, my, my sort of spiritual background, as you, as you point out, is, is kind of, uh, you know, in the Taoist area where, where people like Zhuangzi, uh, you know, the, the emperor, or was it Lao Tzu, one of the, you know, one of the sort of Taoist big ones, uh, big wigs. Um, by the way, Lao Tzu's teacher was apparently a woman. So the founder of my religion, even though it's not really my religion, but, you know, anyway, um, <laughs> my religion is better than yours um, um, but uh, you know when 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 the emperor sent for either Lao Tzu or Chong Tzu, I forget who I, you know and said please I need your I need your advice I mean I, I need your help I'm a politician I, I please come to the capital and work for me and and uh, Lao Tzu or Chong Tzu, you know whoever it is said oh are you kidding me <laughs> no way man. I'm staying as far away from that craziness as possible and so he sent the emissary back to the, to the emperor saying thanks but no thanks so you know and then Taoism itself was born uh, at least philosophical Taoism not the religious type um, was born during uh, during a completely tumultuous time in, in Chinese history where there's a lot of uh, uh, local sort of uh, warlords fighting each other and it was a horrible horrible time so I can sort of understand that um, 
that sort of desire to just you know go away into the mountains and wait it out because that's probably that's probably the safest thing to do i mean if we had the means to like you know my wife uh teaches ballet to um uh, a gazillionaire a russian uh, uh gazillionaire who is hiding out in monaco <laughs> <laughs> during this pandemic <laughs> you know so and they uh, before that they were they went to portugal uh basically surrounded by nothing in, in this castle that they rented or something like that i don't know so we don't have the means to do that but it's 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 a, and it was a nice kind of idea in ancient times but now the world is such that we, you know there's no escape there's no way to go to the mountaintop and wait it out mm. um so we have to be sort of we have to sort of at least me, I'm trying to find a way of having this Taoist equanimity, Taoist kind of sort of, oh, it's it's a big mess, but all is well in the big mess, because that's what Taoism basically says. It's a whole yeah. fucking horrible mess, but all is well in this big mess. Mm. And that's a very hard message to internalize and to really um, make part of your sort of outlook on life, because, you know, you want to keep fighting that. You want to say, no, it's not all right. Um, yeah, and it isn't. But yes, it is. But it isn't. It is. It is. It yeah. Isn't. No, dude. Um, <laughs> no, nicely said. And and I think you've always had a certain equanimity about life, and and um, I think that's one of your strengths is is kind of an even keeled philosophical um, try, man. Try. take on things. Um, you Actually, know, I don't try. You know, fashion. I don't try. Uh, you know, if, if people are like us, you know, searching and, and, and wanting to, to dig into something, um, to find, to find some intellectual solace related to what's going, I think there's a, there's a woman who I've been thinking a lot about and I spent a lot of time, uh, reading and going through her work several years ago. Her name is Simone Weil and she, um, she is a philosopher, mystic, um, and she was a um, the cloud of unknowing. Is that her? That's not her. The cloud of unknowing. No, that's a, that's an older work. Never mind. Yeah, she. You know, I don't know if she had a particular book, but she has like essential essential writings or collected writings. I think she was relatively unknown during her life, but she um, she was born from a, a very wealthy uh, French Jewish family, and at the turn of the 20th century, and she became very distressed about inequality, and she. Um, as many, you know, young people did in the in the 20s, she became uh, a very ardent Marxist, and she um, uh, she was she kind of dropped out of society in a sense. She had actually gone to one of the most prestigious Parisian universities and actually was a classmate of Simone de Beauvoir, and and finished higher than her, which uh, you know shows you her her intellect. But she um, she worked in a in a car factory along you know blue collar folks. Um, she she believed in you know the proletariat, yada yada yada. Um, she eventually, though, started to tire and worry that you know becoming a political radical um, had its own pitfalls, and you sort of start to um, uh, lose sight of other questions of life, right? The, mm. As, mm. as you suggest, from life is very complicated. You cannot simply, you cannot simply have a economic analysis and, and, and see that that is the, yeah, that's uh, not the, the way out. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. So she, she, um, she eventually kind of distanced herself from, 
from being a Marxist and started to become interested in uh, in Christianity. Um, she she developed a very very close relationship with a Catholic priest. She she never uh, uh, was baptized or had any formal entrance into the Catholic Church, but she became very interested in um, this idea of sacrificing for others. You know, a la Christ. Was she it's, around the time of Th Thomas Merton? Is that she contemporaneous with him? Uh, no, because I'm thinking of Thomas Merton had a similar path. Maybe so, not similar, but you know, I I, I think like so in a way, right? She, um, I don't know if Merton ever was uh, a Marxist or super political. He was more of a he went through a literary period, right, where he wanted to be a novelist and a bohemian, right? Um, but there was some political stuff in because he was working up in Harlem, yeah, uh, maybe helping right. help poor kids and stuff like that. Yes. Um, well, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so she eventually um, uh, got involved, uh, went over to Spain during the Spanish Civil War, and and not necessarily as a partisan, but mostly as a kind of, you know, a, a, a nurse or or um, uh, like a, a Red Cross person, much as Walt Whitman did during the U.S. Civil War, just simply to be of service, right, mm -hmm. to humanity it, it, as suffering. Right. Um, and she eventually died when she was very, very young, but. But I think her journey, right, was the journey that I'm I'm kind of getting at here of how how do you find answers, you know, when when things fall apart, so to speak, um, whether in your personal life or in your society. Um, and I think we've got to look to other people who have who have made these journeys um, and made them in very, very broad ways. As I said, she started off simply as a as a Marxist and became you know, much more aware that, um, you know, serving others was really the way out. Mm. Um, but, but at the same time, again, for literary people, she was a, an incredible writer, um, you know, grounded in, in the great work. So I think there's an appeal there as well. So I, I throw that out, Simone Weil, and her last name is spelled uh, W-E-I-L. Um, really, really fascinating woman and, and, and worth everyone's yeah, time. I, you know, it's, I, I'm ashamed to admit that I've not read anything by her. Of course, I'm aware of her, um, aware of her story a little bit, but uh, you've, you've definitely expanded my knowledge of that uh, and that individual. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's, like I said, Mer Merton for me kind of served that kind of, um, and that's why I was reminded of him. Because, but again, you're right, he didn't have as much of a political uh, stance yeah. Though so it was, it was he got very political uh, once he, once he sort of had his quote unquote enlightenment, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, in fact, he was censored um, for a lot of his uh, later writings um, mm -hmm. against nuclear war, nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. um, so he he sort of became politicized as his mysticism sort of uh, blossomed, which is right. interesting. It's a very that's a very rare combo, by the way, and that's that's why people are love Merton, I think, because he had that like, again, going back to what I was telling you about Gaddis, that that sort mm -hmm. of that ethical stance of like, you know what, I'm a human being, and I live in my this is my world that I live in. I say this is wrong. This is anti-human, and yep. I think uh, with with while Simone Wheel or however you pronounce her name, uh, they. Yep. They, uh, she turned to uh, Christianity, Merton turned to Christianity, to mysticism. Uh, I think in, in my psyche, 
um, I have to turn to humanism because I am mm-hmm. uh, I am a humanist uh, for sure. Uh, even though I have my Taoist, you know, sort of mystical kind of leanings, uh, but they're more they're more um, metaphysical and more sort of you know I guess mystical. Uh, but humanism is something that I can stand behind a hundred percent. It's not a set of principles. It's uh, it's it's more invitation and a challenge uh, for us to be kind to each other, to flourish, to to make sure that everybody has a, some sort of a space around the individual in a society that gives this individual space to flourish, to be whatever they they have leanings towards, to actually explore those leanings and to, to and to and to blossom into some sort mm-hmm. of a, and to have a meaningful life. And when you see a lot of these lives being strangled. Uh, literally, you know, um, and figuratively, um, of, of opportunities to blossom and to continue uh, as human beings, that's when we have to stand up and say, no, this is not fucking right. Yep. Um, in whatever way we can do it, by writing novels, by talking on podcasts, by demonstrating on the streets, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we can't stand for this. And the thing is... Let's not forget this, Rob. I mean, we're not. We're not going to. Uh, but, you know, we have the Rodney King situation. We have the, the a guy over here on Staten Island with I Can't Breathe. There's just, just like little, little, little examples of a huge problem, a systemic problem. And we just, we can't, we can't go on like this. We have to. We have to say no. Loudly and vociferously and continuously. So... Fuck the police. Fuck the police. Fuck the police. That's just stupid, I know. But uh, it makes me feel better. <laughs> got to say what you got to say, my friend. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I just see I, I spend the morning, unfortunately, not reading Poe, but uh, but uh, looking at police violence. And therefore, my mind is, is has been warped. Yeah. Fuck. Fuck you, police. Fuck you for your behavior. Let me just say it again. Fuck you. And uh, we should stop now because I'm getting upset. <laughs> <laughs> We, we will. And, and again, um, you know, we, we thank everybody for listening and, you know, uh, indulging us to a certain respect. We, we're more than just, uh, you know, book podcasters. So, um, you know, uh, and, and we know that you guys are more than just readers, that there's a lot going on. So you can't, you can't we, separate, man. We can't yeah, separate the, our, 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 our reading habits from our life and because exactly. it, it is our lives, you know? Yep. Totally. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I think um, in the weeks to come, as summer progresses, um, you know, you'll, you'll probably see, um, you know, more developments in this vein. So we'll see. Um, yeah. Societies, um, you know, one of the things just to, to end on, a, I think, on a positive note in some ways is I was watching Thomas Piketty on Democracy Now! Actually, they had him on to talk about his thoughts on the economy and the pandemic. And, and he, one of the things that he said from his study of history is that um, structures in society that seem to us um, fixed, uh, ossified, you know, impossible to change, uh, when, when, when they meet a war, a pandemic, or um, revolutionary political ideas, they can change overnight. So mm-hmm. those things that seem impossible can change almost on a dime, and, and history shows that. I mean, nobody in St. Petersburg, you know, a few weeks ago, a few weeks before the October Revolution, probably nobody except uh, Lenin and his crowd really thought that something like that could happen. Right. But 
you know, those things can change really quickly. And, and, um, so, you know, so I think, um, you know, that's something to sort of chew on. I mean, I'm, I'm very much on the side of somewhat cautious about the idea of revolutions because they, they tend to lead to, you well, know, yeah, violence. It's, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's what Taoists say. Taoists say, well, yeah. you know, you're going to, you're going to demonstrate and you're going to overthrow, you're going to use violence against violence. Yeah. And what you're going to get at the end of that is just another cycle uh, of the same bullshit. Um, but uh, just but just to leave you with another Taoist kind of image, which which kind of goes into what you were saying, Rob, is that uh, there's a big, strong, let's say, elm tree or oak tree standing in the middle of the field, right? Big, strong tree. It's been there for hundreds of years. Uh, it's powerful. It's, you know, it's 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 just got strength you can see it's a big tree and next to it you have you got a bunch of bamboo groves you know and so what happens when a super strong like a hurricane comes the bamboo reeds they, they bend they they bend with the wind they go all over the place but they bend they're fine the oak tree is broken with the yeah. hurricane it gets yeah. cracked yep. because it's just you know but anyway it's a Taoist image to leave yeah. you with Nice. Yeah. I, I, I like that. And, and we'll, uh, perhaps we'll, we'll end with that. And um, good talking to you again, my friend. It helps. It helps to talk. So, yeah. Let's, let's hope to have a better, better head for next time. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, uh, Heston. Hope all is well over there. And uh, just remind people that you can follow us on Twitter at feelbookish. And if you can uh, remember to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it. So um, thanks again. And I'll talk to you later, Roman. Talk soon, man. Take okay. Care. Bye-bye.